0: morning gang it is tuesday uh what is it july 14th i think so july 14th uh forgive me for not being quite aware of what's going on or what time it is because i just got back from vacation i was on vacation in california uh, for two weeks visiting all of my family and friends in case you don't Know me, or you just know me through our devotions here. Um, uh, that's where I'm originally from. Uh, you probably know that I'm on the East Coast, and I split my time between New York City and uh, and New Jersey, where I serve two churches. And uh, but the rest of my family and uh, and all of my friends, at least uh, most of them, historically are back on the West Coast. So I got to spend a couple of weeks uh, just hanging out with them and with family and friends, and it was a great old time uh, between Southern and Northern California. But I'm glad to be back in the saddle again today looking at God's Word with you. Uh, Today we're going to look at uh, what started off for me anyway as the uh, Old Testament lectionary text for this upcoming Sunday uh, for at least most churches that follow the lectionary and that is Isaiah 44. Now the reading for this Sunday is only Isaiah 44 verses uh, verses 6 through 8 but as I was digging into the passage I realized that yes that passage in itself is adequate and says a lot, and there's much that can be gleaned just from that. But uh, it is also true that the surrounding context is really pretty fascinating uh, for a number of reasons, and so I figured we'd dig into that a little bit. One of the reasons that I think it is fascinating is because it does something to, well, it does something to us that I think are a little bit more theologically or philosophically minded that sometimes we're not real comfortable with and that is it makes us have to grapple with God as he is rather than just according to the theological categories that were that we may be more comfortable with him sticking in Um, what you'll find I mean so let me give you an example and how it applies to this passage today what you'll often find of course if you read a systematic theology or a dogmatics book, that's what it used to be called anyway, you're going to find that, well, we're gonna try and figure out um, who God is in a logical, coherent way and try and describe his attributes and his character according to a logical, consistent way from the scriptures. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. I, I love systematic theology. But what we'll find oftentimes is that, for example, we'll say, It's very clear from Scripture that God is sovereign, that God is unchanging. Uh, You know, some will say, uh, you know, very common doctrine throughout the history of the church is that God is impassible, that He is, that He doesn't actually feel. That's that is a doctrine that has been taught in the church throughout most of its history, that He has divine impassibility. But then, when you actually look just at the Scriptures and the way God chooses to present himself to us well god chooses to present himself you can say it's anthrop uh, anthropomorphizing on his part that he's trying to make himself approachable to us as humans fine whatever you want to say i get it but the way god actually does present himself is as very emotional sometimes and this passage is one of those passages where God, who doesn't change, and we know he doesn't, and we affirm that, frankly, presents himself in this very sort of waffling way throughout Isaiah. And and the reason is, is because God ultimately is, God ultimately does want us to know that he is a relational being, that he does want us to know that He is he is grappling with us and showing us how he is... How he is dealing with us in our sinful state and our struggles and our worries and everything else. God is, is engaging with us as we are. He is not merely standing high above all things, even though he very, very much has the right to do that, high and lofty. But no, he is engaging with us as beings the way we actually are. So let me get into the passage. We're going to start off in Isaiah 43. Verse uh, 22. So, give you a little background. God, previous to this verse in Isaiah 43, is really explaining all the reasons that, um, that his people had been taken into exile. He's explaining all the things that he's done for them in spite of the exile and how faithful he has been to them. And yet he says this, verse 22 of Isaiah 43. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have, been, you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have br- not brought me your sheep for your burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, of course, when they were in exile, they could not bring the offering to God because the temple was not accessible to them. They were far away from it. And so God says, right at the beginning of the passage here, right at the beginning of what we've started to read, I I didn't even require of you to bring burnt offerings to me during this time. You're in exile. I know you couldn't. But you could have brought me something to show that you were worshiping me. And you didn't. Instead, really, all you brought was your sins and iniquities, and they have wearied me. So in other words, you know they, before this, you know the, you had the sort of temple rituals that were going on where many people of Israel would go because it was just sort of part of daily life and it was what they did, but it wasn't done from a heart of actual worship and gratitude. and that's been shown to be true thoroughly as they've been taken away from the temple that there doesn't just, it's not done from a heart of worship. And so all they bring to God is their sins and iniquities, and they're not bringing it to him in a way that confesses it to him, but they're bringing it to him in a way that is deplorable to him, in a way that basically um, wearies him and burdens him. And so you would expect, based on this rejoinder, this rebuke to them, that the very next words of the passage would be, Since you have not served me adequately, since you have not loved me adequately, well, you're going to go down. That's just the way it is. I've had it with you. God would be totally just and right in doing so. But to, I believe, the audience's great shock and awe, and to our great shock and awe, suddenly God seems to change his whole tone in the very next verse. Listen to verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. (laughs) What is going on? He's literally just listed ways in which he's remembering their sins and the ways in which they have failed and fallen short in this time of exile. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of even listing their problems, God comes back to His faithfulness and says, "I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not. I'm not going to remember your sins." Now, remember, um, you know, if you want to get a fuller picture of this, listen to 40 minutes in the Old Testament. But when God remembers something, God acts. Well, the same thing is true when God forgets something. When God forgets something, God acts. God is acting to declare you who you are not naturally to be through faith in Jesus Christ, just as he declared the children of Jacob, the children of Israel in the prophet Isaiah here to be forgiven, to have their transgressions blotted out. And why does he do it? Does he do it because he looked through them and all of their hearts and he said, you know, yeah, you failed a little bit and yeah, you've fallen short, but I can see you've still got a spark of the divine in there and I'm gonna, no. He says, I'm doing this for my own sake. And that makes sense because right after this, he's going to give He's going to sort of list reasons why it must be for his own sake. He says in verse 26, put me in remembrance, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction, and Israel to reviling. Well, here we go again. I so do you see what's? Do you see what I'm talking about with having a, a little bit of difficulty reading the prophets and trying to categorize God in one way or another? What did I? What did he just say? I'm the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. He gives a list of why they're not deserving. Of having their transgressions blotted out, he says, "Your first father sin your mediators transgressed. Therefore, I'm going to profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction." Well, I thought you just said they're forgiven. Well, I do think we can reconcile it a little bit here. In the on the one hand, I think we can reconcile this in this way: it is possible for God to indeed not hold our sins against us, to forgive us, to declare us righteous. And yet at the same time, as Hebrews 12 teaches, to discipline his children and to bring about, uh, to, to, teach, to actually treat us like kids when we do need to be disciplined and need to be guided and instructed for. I think that that you could reconcile that here. So in other words, God may be saying to the people of Israel, I've forgiven you, I've blotted out your transgressions. That doesn't mean that you still don't need discipline as my children for your ways so that you don't fall into these ways again. That could be. But either way, it just seems like there's this kind of waffling back and forth here. Well, let's continue, Isaiah 44. But now here, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now, scholars are not entirely sure what this Jeshurun word means. It does come, we do hear it one other time in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32. Uh, It's used to describe the, the offspring of Jacob. But most scholars believe that the word literally could be translated something like upright one or righteous one. Now, isn't this fascinating? Again, this sort of going back and forth here. God says, Jacob, I'm going I'm to I'm come after you. I'm going to lay your princes down because of what they've done to us. And then what does he say here? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, righteous one, whom I have chosen. What did he just say about Jacob a few verses ago? Your father sinned against me. Your mediator sinned against me. Ah, But when God declares a person to be forgiven, when the blood of Jesus Christ covers over a person's sins, God does indeed have the ability and the capacity to look at you and I, no matter what we have done, to declare us righteous ones in spite of ourselves. Not because of us, not because we're good, but because he's good because he's gracious and forgiving and so he goes on verse five here's how he's going to restore jacob even though they've been laid waste even though they've gone through all this trouble in exile he says for i will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground i will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants now this is really uh covenant language here right i mean if you go back to the first the covenant that god made with abraham what does he say to your offspring and those who come from your offspring ultimately speaking of christ uh, all the nations of the world will be blessed well he says i will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants and what will happen as a result of this water of the spirit coming they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. So great promises here that God says, in spite of your many failures and many flaws, I am going to use you. I am going to forgive you and I am going to bring others to me through you. Incredible promises, not because of their worthiness at all, but because of his good and gracious plan. Now you might say, well, why should I believe God? Well, that certainly was a struggle for the Israelites and for the, uh, for the citizens of Judea back in the day. Well, this is what God will go on to say in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So here you have God in this passage saying, In case you needed to be reminded why you can trust that I actually have the power to redeem you, that I'm gracious enough that I can save you from your sins, that I can blot out your sins, remember my word and my faithfulness to you. I have told you what's going to happen beforehand, and it's come to pass. He's pointing back to the promises that he's made throughout all of Scripture and wants the people to remember that, so that they can actually depend on him and the same is true for you and me if you ever struggle with uh you know with doubt or wondering if this really is the true god look to the v- validity of his word look to his word of promise look to how many uh, look to even just the prophecies that have been fulfilled over and over and over and over again from the old testament into the new testament and shore yourself up with that Shore yourself up with that as opposed to other systems and that's what god is going to go into next here so he says all who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit their witnesses neither see nor nor know that they may be put to shame who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing behold all his companions shall be put to shame and the craftsmen are only human let them all assemble let them stand forth they shall be terrified they shall they shall be put to shame together now, God is going to go into a detailed description here, and I think this is a good evidence of God's sense of humor uh, about what exactly happens in the process of idolatry. He's contrasting himself with his li- with His steadfast faithfulness and love for his people, with his uh, uh, promises found in his word that he's fulfilled for them. And he's going to contrast that with the false gods that they're so often prone to running after. And at bottom, he's going to remind them how well, how silly all of us are when we fall into the practice of worshiping something or trusting something other than the true God. He says, verse 12, The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it in an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You see the folly that God is pointing out here. A person can take the same piece of wood, use a bunch of it for firewood that evening to warm themselves and to make a meal, and then take a little lump from that same wood, fashion what they view as a god out of it, bow down to it, and pretend that that piece of wood has any power to deliver them at all, has any power to redeem them at all. Now, of course, you know, most of us, I don't think struggle with the idolatry that involves taking a piece of wood today, but we still very much struggle with idolatry anyhow, in various other forms, we take these temporal things of this life and we invest eternal significance in them thinking that they're going to satisfy us when they never were meant to satisfy us at all thinking that they might even have the power to redeem us or make our lives more meaningful when they do not at all ultimately we are meant to be in relationship and right relationship to god ultimately we're meant to find our hope our redemption our forgiveness and his faithfulness not meant to find it in the things of this world so he goes on they know not nor do they discern verse 18 for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand no one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burn in the fire I also bake bread on its coals I roasted meat and have eaten and sh- shall I make the rest of it an abomination shall I fall down before a block of wood He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So this is God really rebuking the whole practice of idolatry that Israel had fallen into over and over and over and over again, that had eventually led them into the exile, that gave God every good reason in the world to send them into exile instead of worshiping him and all of his faithfulness to him, he, they go after these false gods. And so God says, you know, this is what you were doing. You were taking a worthless piece of wood and ascribing to him the things that you should have ascribed to me. And so he goes on verse 21, and we're gonna wrap it up here at verse uh, 23. Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Do you see again? So here is God, this contrast in this passage. He's just listed off the complete folly of their idolatry. And then he goes right back to his faithfulness again. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist return to me for i have redeemed you when when god sees the folly of our day-to-day lives we're tempted to think at any given time "I, i i wonder if i've gone too far i wonder if this shows that i'm not genuine enough lord knows there's way more preachers than we need out there that are more than happy to make you question whether you're in right standing with god i mean you know that's there's endless voices of accusation remember that's what the devil actually does he waits to accuse you so every day you fall short of the glory of god in some way or another and the accuser is coming at you throwing all of your sins in your face and you're prone to wondering is god still for me israel surely was too And so what does God have to do over and over again for them and for us? He has to remind them of what he's promised them. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. I have. It's done. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he didn't have his fingers crossed. He didn't wink at the criminal next to him. There was, no, there, there was no hint of a lack of sincerity. He meant it, folks. So if you've been running afraid to come clean with God, as Israel so often was, prone to hiding and prone to wandering, Lord, I feel it. That was Israel's story. And that's our story so often. God says again, return to me for I have redeemed, I bought you. I bought you back. And because of this, because God is so faithful in spite of our failures and our sins and and even our our idolatrous ways, here's how the passage that we'll look at today. And sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel yes, as we dwell on the God who is faithful to forgive us and blot out our transgressions day in and day out through Jesus Christ our Lord, the proper response is indeed for the universe to cry out in praise and thanksgiving. And we do that today. All right, folks, a little longer devotion here uh, today, but uh, just as as I was digging through Isaiah yesterday, I thought, man, I really want to go over this and Uh, just get into the text with you. So I hope that was encouraging to you. And uh, may God richly bless you as you move on in your day today. All right, Uh, we'll see you next Tuesday. God bless.